I thought it very interesting that the, the, two, the two hymns we opened with tonight spoke of a Christian home. Uh, the first one said, Oh, give us homes built firm upon the Savior, where Christ is head and counselor and guide, where every child is taught his love and favor and gives his heart to Christ the crucified. How sweet to know that though his footsteps waver, his faithful Lord is walking by his side. The second one says, happy the home when, when God is there and love fills every breast when one their wish and one their prayer and one their heavenly rest. I don't know that I've ever sung those two hymns. How many of you old timers have sung those growing up? Fran, you're the oldest one here. You would be the one that had sung. <laughs> no, I'd never sung those. Those are very nice, uh, very nice hymns, and they actually have singable tunes, so we may sing them again. <laughs> but uh, I think it very interesting in that uh, the vast majority of us here tonight, I'm sure, grew up in Christian homes, in homes where mom and dad were believers, and to one degree or another, uh, faithful in bringing us out to the meetings, faithful in delivering the word of God. How many of you came from homes where you had a, a loving mother and father that nurtured you in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? Almost every hand went up. And even those of you that may not have come from born again homes, may still have had parents that were God-fearing at least. And that's better than nothing. It is, to me, not a dilemma, but it is, it is a question that can, we cannot come to on our own in how that you and I were blessed this way and so many millions around the world are not. They're brought up in homes that are not only lacking in an understanding of God, they are filled with the darkness, a darkness of idolatry or of false religion. And how it would seem to us that they are in a hopeless state, that they are bound by their culture or by their religion or by their, the practice of their, their people and their families. And the thought of that as we sung the hymns really dovetails into what I had chosen from our list of doctrinal topics that some of the men have been passed out and we've been asked on Sunday evenings to systematically do a, a teachings in the basic doctrines of the church doctrines of salvation, doctrines of, uh, well, of theology broken down into three parts, the theology of the Godhead, the theology of Christ, Christology of, of God the Son, and of God the Holy Spirit, pneumatology as it's called in the list here. We've got uh, doctrines of human race, we've got doctrines of uh, future events, so there's, there's a whole list of things here. A few weeks ago, Russ spoke on the doctrine of eternal security as opposed to the doctrine of, uh, of Calvinism. And uh, I don't know how many of us feel this way, but I am, I am very, very, very 
I have very strong opinions on Calvinism and the absolute error of it and how it deceives the people of God and how they they, uh, there is really no assurance of faith if you believe that solely the sovereignty of God is the only player in your salvation. That some are made to be damned and others are made to be redeemed. And to me, it's, I'm so glad that he went into it. He went, he went very heady into it and brought up Arminianism and, and quoted many of the old, old uh, early, early saints. He was a little heady in it. I would have been more vociferous and nasty, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I would have thumped. <laughs> but uh, it was good. Anyway, a subject I chose tonight, which is something that really, uh, in my teens and 20s, I found to be a very, a very, I wouldn't say disturbing or perplexing, I would say very, um, of great concern to me. And that was that I, a young man who have known no other church or assembly other than what we see here in these four walls, because I was two years old when my parents brought us here. And it was, it would have taken a, a strong, well, it's true with anyone. It would take an act of will, an act of disobedience to turn away from the revealed truth of God's word. And I believe that that holds true to everyone. But how can they be held? You know, we read in Romans chapter 1 that there are none that have an excuse. All are without excuse. No one will stand before God and say, by virtue of my circumstances, the land I was born in, the tribe I was in, the culture I was raised in, and the prevailing religion of, of that culture, that I had no opportunity to hear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know for a fact that there are thousands, if not millions of people around the world that have lived and died without hearing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it's clear to us that uh, where is it? Uh, um, five twelve. Neither is there salvation. Where, what book is that? Acts. Acts five twelve. I'm sorry. Acts four twelve. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. So there are no exceptions to the rule that through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation is brought to man. Therefore, we come to the perplexing question. How is it that people live and die without ever hearing the name of the Lord Jesus? Titus 2, 11 and 12 tells us that for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to the elect. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Hath appeared to all men. Hath appeared to all men. How can that be? And one of the subcategories under the doctrine that we're looking at is the doctrine of God's self-revelation. How God has revealed himself 
to all men. You and I cannot, cannot fathom how blessed we are that from our youth, probably the first song I ever heard was not something from Sesame Street or from uh, Mother Goose, probably the first song that ever entered my little you know, one-month-old ears or one-week-old ears was Jesus Loves Me. And those were the songs that were, that were you know, the mother's milk to us. We grew up that way. You know, and, and when we were here in the nursery, the puzzles we played with were the puzzles of Noah's Ark. And then over here in the Sunday school, we're raised until we're, we're able to receive the meat of the word. What a blessing this is. What a blessing. But the Bible, the word of God promises us, it assures us that God is not willing that any should perish. And that through his, we're going to look at in the scripture, this is not just going to be my opinions, we're going to look in the scripture, that through his creation, through the things that are made, and through the revelation of the spirit, that all men are brought to the point, and the scripture goes on to say that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And we'll look more into this. Uh, and uh, I've got notes here somewhere. I rarely follow them, but I, I have notes. If we look at the history of God's dealing with the world, with the nations, we see that God intervened personally and practically in many ways. My first thought was of that ideal picture when God himself walked with Adam in the garden. When God spoke to him verbally and appeared to him in a physical form, I don't believe that God just sent his voice into the garden. I believe that God himself in a physical form and dare I say in the form of the pre-incarnate Christ walked with the first Adam the last Adam walking side by side with the first Adam in the garden, instructing him in his ways, blessing him with a knowledge of creation and a knowledge of the creator that none of us can dream of this side of glory. And how that he set him in a perfect setting and blessed him with all blessings. And I've I've taught the kids at the Awana program that there in Eden, the garden of God, God gave to Adam and to Eve a billion trees, each more delicious than the next, fruits and nuts, and a tree that was to give them eternal life, the tree of life. And of the billion trees in there, God reserved for himself only one. I'm going to give you one billion and I'm going to reserve to myself one. Because you know, Adam, you and I are not equal. I am the creator and you are the created. There are so many things for you, but there are some that are, there's one for me. And he reserved to himself one thing. And so there, in the garden, 
We don't know how many days or months or years Adam tended that garden before that fateful day. But God revealed himself to Adam in a way that none since has had the opportunity. We know that he revealed himself later to Noah, righteous Noah. You know, there weren't eight righteous people that went onto the ark, right? There was one righteous person went onto the ark and his family, sanctified because of him. And God spoke to Noah. And God instructed Noah. And a beautiful contrast that I, I was thinking of, and I'm sure you've all thought of it as well, is that the two, the two, they're really the first men, aren't they? Adam, the first man of the race before the flood, and Noah, the first man of the race after the flood. Adam was taken from perfection and put into ruin. And then I thought of how Noah was taken from corruption, where the world was filled with violence, that even the imaginations of the thoughts of the hearts of the people were only evil continually. And God delivered him above the floods and set him down on a mount in a, in a land that had been purged of this violence, that had been purged of this sin, this sin and a new beginning. They're almost an antithesis, one of the other. One taken from perfection and had to be put into ruin, and one take, uh, delivered from violence and put into this new cleansed environment, and how they had uh, continued on. God spoke verbally to Abraham as well. He spoke to Abraham and told him to go into the land and, and gave him the promise, that covenant, that he would make of Abraham a mighty nation, and that from his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. What a beautiful promise. To Moses, we have him appear. We have God appears to Moses first in the burning bush and gives him that beautiful foreshadowing of Christ when he says, I am that I am. The same words that the Lord Jesus would use so much later when he was questioned, he would say, I am a name reserved to God. But all these pictures, you know, even when you think of to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, God blessed the Egyptians in an amazing way through Joseph, didn't he? Pharaoh rose him to be ruler in all of Egypt, raised him up. Well, it was really God that raised him up. But through him, he was a blessing to the entire nation, to the land. Through him, the land was spared from famine. Through him, they became wealthy beyond belief because the rest of the world, the local world, came to buy from them and from the stores that had been set aside. Through them, Pharaoh's name was exalted in the world. And through them, the name of the true God came into, into uh, Egypt. There are archaeologists that say, you know, Pharaoh has always been, uh, you know, multitude of gods until they came to this one Pharaoh and he... He was um, famous for being a worshiper of a single God. And I don't know how that corresponds with the timeline of Joseph, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was in the time of Joseph when they put aside the idols 
and they followed the true and living God. And how God continued to bless them, even though there came a Pharaoh that remembered not Joseph. And God visited the Egyptians in the time of Moses, and he visited them with the plagues, physical signs, plagues that began, that, that touched the possessions of the Egyptians, their cattle, and their, and their, uh, their, their crops. And then it touched the very bodies of the Egyptians as the plagues continued. And then with the plague of darkness, it touched their very minds until the final plague when it touched their children and it took their lives. So God has appeared uh, to man throughout the scriptures, but this doesn't answer our question how he reveals himself to all. The psalmist tells us that morning to morning, the name, of the, the name of God goes forth from the sun rising in its glory till it traverses the sky and sets. It's my paraphrase. He speaks of it, and to him, to him it is such a dear thing. And I think of David. <clears throat> David, my favorite character in all of Scripture. I think of David, and I think of him as a lad before he ever went to face Goliath, he would spend his evenings in the field, wouldn't he? He'd spend his evenings in the of the wolf or the bear or the lion. His eyes open and his eyes upon the, the heavens. And perhaps with some type of a harp in his hand, he would compose psalms and songs that proclaim the glory of God, the glory of the majesty of his creation, his eternal power and Godhead. And then throughout the remainder of, of the Old Testament, we see how God is demonstrated and revealed not only to his people, but to the neighboring people as well, through the prophets, through the fathers. Through the types, you know, you can think of the tabernacle and later the temple. You can think of the brazen serpent, and it goes on and on and on. You can think of the powers imbued in the prophets by God himself. And how that a little maiden up in Damascus could tell her master of the God of Israel, whose servant can heal you. And so Naaman came down. So throughout the Old Testament, we see the revelation of God to his people. We hear, we see that the Queen of Sheba has heard not only of the wealth and grandeur of Solomon's kingdom, but also about his God and about his temple. And she had to come and see it. And she goes home and says, the half, the half had not been told. Amazing. And then 1,500 years later, some strangers off in the east, wise men, not Jews, but wise men in the east who had studied the prophets. They'd studied the law and the prophets. They'd studied the word of God on their own. So we know that there was not a time when darkness covered all the earth, but that the name of God had gone forth. We don't know in detail how far 
Jewish zealots had traveled the world or believers. Remember, it wasn't Jewish blood that saved those people, was it? It was faith. It was their faith in God, the faith in the promise that a redeemer would come. It was not relegated only to the Jew, but there were those that were counted righteous among the Gentiles as well. There were those that sought him out. And God, who is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, would lead them to the truth, whether it was through traveling to Jerusalem or whether it was through meeting someone who knew the truth. And then that takes us into the New Testament. We take it for granted that God reveals himself as we know. You know, Hebrews 1 tells us that in diverse times and in different ways, God spoke to us in times past through the prophets, but in this latter day has spoken to us. How? Through his son. Through his son, the Lord Jesus, through the word incarnate and through his word that we have with us. To us, it seems natural and normal, but how has he revealed himself to the far-flung edges of the world? Romans chapter 1, which will be our, our key uh, passage for tonight. We know it well. We've had received good teaching on it. But for our younger brothers and sisters that may ask that, because I, I used to have... I used to have uh, Errant, <laughs> errant opinions that God was able to save the noble savages, no matter what name they called him, as long as they recognized that there was a creator and they were subject to him. So they could call him by any of a million names as long as they revered him and abased themselves. But that flies in the face of the teaching of Scripture. Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I should get over to that book. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel of Christ, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Chapter, uh, verse 18 takes us into the guilty world. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. We'll stop there for a minute. We see from verse 16 that the power of God unto salvation is revealed through the gospel of Christ. But God, through creation, and not just the creation around us 
and above us and below us, but the creation within us that is us reveals God to us. And I, who have never gone to bed one night in my life wondering where I'm going to spend eternity, because even from the very youngest of days, I put my faith wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember sitting in the back row back there. I haven't been back there in years, of course, but sitting in the back row and up here in front, half of you remember Jim Ross. Jim Ross was preaching a gospel message, 1963 or four. And I'm sitting in the back row there and I have chills down the back of my neck not because I was impressed with God's provision or the love of the Lord Jesus or this gift, this unspeakable gift, but I was impressed with the fact that I was going to spend eternity separate from my mom and dad. I was scared to death. And I knew that it wasn't a, a, an if, it was a definite thing, that I was bound to be separated from my believing parents by virtue that I myself had not put my trust in the Lord Jesus. I had not believed in him. I didn't know the, the fine points. I, I, did, I barely knew the vagaries of the gospel. But I knew that there was one way to heaven. Since that time, in my early teens, you know, you'll, you'll hear different preachers presented a different way. And I would say to myself, you know what? When I got saved, I don't remember if I used the word repentance. I don't, I don't think I did. I better get saved again. I don't know if I used the word, I don't know if I really thoroughly admitted that I was a sinner in need of salvation, so I better get saved again. And, and I, I probably got saved a dozen times, but I didn't, did I? I got saved once. I got saved once. And in the past so many years, I haven't, I haven't questioned the formula. Because if I am relying on a formula, if I'm relying on <clears throat> certain words, certain thoughts, certain feelings, then I'm relying on myself, aren't I? I am not thoroughly saved because, you know what, I didn't agree to repent, not knowing what that word meant. Now I understand the word to mean that to repent means instead of turning my back on God, I've turned my, my, my face to him and I'm resting in him. Have I forsaken every sin? Of course not. How, do I always walk in a manner that is pleasing to him? No. Do I walk in a way that others can look at me and say that man is different? No. But I've repented insofar as that I have Changed from going my own way like those sheep in Isaiah 53. We all have gone our own way. And I have turned and I have rested in the Savior. I didn't have to run to him because he was not far from me. All I had to do was turn to him. And his arms were there for me. 
What a beauty, the simplicity of the gospel. And it's revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those that are far afield, what does the scripture say? How shall they hear unless, or how shall they believe unless they hear? And how shall they hear unless someone is sent to them? And so where are they? God has gone this far. God has, through his creation, the things that are seen and things that are not seen, he has made clear that he is God and we are not. He has made, from, he has made clear from our position in the creation, though evolutionists will tell you otherwise, that we're just another species of mammal that just seems to have gotten out of the trees, that our position in creation is so unique and so superior, and how that God has promised that he has given us dominion over creation. Brothers and sisters, we're not a half a step ahead of a chimpanzee, or a porpoise, or some other so-called sentient being. We are as high above them as they are above the algae. They are not capable of writing poetry, of writing psalms, of composing odes to their creator. They are not capable of language and expression. Brothers and sisters, he has made us unique in creation. And if that alone was the only evidence for us, that we are unique in creation, that we feel that we have regrets, that we have remorse, that we realize that there is wrath against, the wrath of God is against sin, isn't it? Some, someone has said that there, there is a God-shaped void in every human heart. Well, that is a, that's a cute way of putting it, but the reality is there is. There is a void. There is a void in every heart. And that is why men and women, boys and girls around the world, seek something to fill that void. And they will seek many and different things. And they will try pleasure, and they will try fame, and they will try excitement, and they will try philosophy, and they will try religion. And they will continue to try until they die or they find everlasting life. So there is that void in the heart of men. So within ourselves, there is an understanding. The word of God tells us that through the, through the very creation, we understand that there is a wrath. We were made not just with a mind that took us on a path of self-preservation. I must eat. I must find shelter. I must find warmth. There is within every man and woman until the such time as they choose to turn the light out, there is a conscience of good and evil. There is an expectation of good, and there is, and there is a, a, a despising of that which is evil. Maybe some cultures look at it differently than others, but that is something there is no remorse in a lion that kills. 
But there's remorse in the heart of a man or a woman when they knowingly commit sin. And that was something that was imbued to them by their creator. The Bible says that we not only see, we not only feel the wrath of God against sin, it says that through creation, we can see the eternal, his eternal power. Now that, I think we look outward for. We look inward and we, we can sense God's wrath against sin. We look outward and we look at creation. And we're looking at a totally different creation than Adam looked at. And we're looking at perhaps a different creation than Noah looked at. We're looking at a creation that is groaning right now, isn't it? Creation around us is growing to be redeemed. God's people are going to be redeemed. But God's creation, which had no part in this sin, has suffered the consequences of it, hasn't it? And it groans, longing for the day when it too will be redeemed, when the desert will flower. And if you're a student of history or archaeology, you know that this world, from pole to pole, once bloomed, once flowed, yet the deserts are growing by leaps and bounds. Places that were lush before are becoming barren. There, there's no new fertile ground being formed, except at the mouth of a delta. They found uh, cave paintings in the very center of the Sahara Desert, where, the, where the, the residents there in the midst of the Sahara Desert depicted pictures of hippos frolicking in the rivers and streams in the center of the Sahara Desert. And today it's a wasteland devoid of life. And yet we look at this creation around us, <clears throat> not even thinking of the stars. And we think of this system that God created. And even in its wounded form, its ruined form, this is a system that, that is sustained, that reproduces, that replenishes, that feeds itself. As oxygen is consumed, it's regenerated by the plants. It's... It's an amazing system. Isn't nature wonderful? Nature's amazing. That nature would have this guided force. Evolution is so powerful, isn't it? That it can guide itself, not into decline, as the laws of physics would tell us, but rather, because there is energy entering the system, that it will improve itself, that it will build life, that it will diversify. Nature's wonderful. <laughs> oh. But that's what happens when you reject God. You have to choose something to take its place because there is a void in our heart, isn't there? If we reject God as the creator, the sustainer, that provident hand of guidance, we have to replace it with something, don't we? And it's going to be nature. In fact, this chapter tells us, tells us how that we we have turned our back on God and we glorify the creation rather than the creator. We deny the creator. And how many of us have seen family or friends turn their back on the, on the creator and embrace the creation? It's so sad, but you know, the, the spirit of God is powerful. We know that there's more to the revelation of God than his creation. 
both within and without us. We know there's more. We know that God reveals himself to all men through his spirit. His spirit struggles within the hearts. How many of us have heard the stories of missionaries that have arrived on foreign soil, that have trod through the jungles or through the swamps or have arrived on some desert island to find a people there that say, we have been praying for someone to bring us the truth. We have been following these false gods that do nothing while our children die. And we've rejected them and we've prayed to the true God to send someone to teach us, to show us, to reveal to us. And at that day, at that time, the Lord sends someone to them. I don't believe there's a man or woman on the face of the earth, no matter how remote, that has ever had their prayer denied. Oh, creator God, reveal yourself to us. Send someone to us, reveal your truth. You think God has ever denied that prayer? No, he's brought them, he's brought them to that point. And not all do, but some he's brought to the point, and they have not rejected it. And they feel the, re the revelation of God, either through his creation or through themselves or through the Spirit, that there is something that they need to have. There's something that they need because they're doomed. And God supplies that. Oh, there's some great stories you know, I, I, who wrote the book, Angola Beloved? Was that Bill Deans? Bill, or uh, T. Ernest Wilson? Who was that? T. Ernest Wilson. What a great book that is. And all those missionary books, the stories are amazing. Of how they'll go into a, a village or a tribe that is dominated by demonism. A shaman that, reign, that rules that village in terror. Demons that, that, are, that, are, that rule that village. And the Spirit of God comes in there. And the, the village as a whole turns to, the, turns to the truth. Because they know what darkness is. And when light is shown to them, the, the, the contrast is so stark. And their entire villages, their entire regions. We had that uh, missionary conference here just a couple months ago talking about the number of assemblies in Zambia, the number of assemblies on some of the islands in the Caribbean that would put us to shame. Mighty Southern California with 25 million people, we've only got a dozen assemblies. And yet Jamaica has 200. And it's growing by leaps and bounds. India. There are more Christians in India than there are in the United States. There's, there may well be more in China than there are in the United States. And it's growing. Because light has been introduced and it has that power over darkness. God has revealed himself. And then we look at the skies. You know, we sing the hymn. We sing the hymn. How's the hymn go? Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder... Consider all the, the, the worlds thy hands have made. And we do. And those of us that, you know, have either seen a special on PBS or something, 
that shows the incredible vastness of the universe. That all came from nothing. Well, I take that back. Supposedly it came from a lump of mass the size of a grapefruit or a volleyball. The condensed mass of the universe that I could hold in my hand if it didn't weigh a zillion, gazillion tons, that one day just kind of burped once and then blew up. And I don't care where you aim a telescope tonight. You'll see a million galaxies that way, and that way, and that way, and that way, and that way. There is no bound that we can see to it. And this is the sky that we are denied in our lifetimes, aren't we? We've got to go to a mountaintop in Utah or Arizona to see a night sky like the world has enjoyed up until the modern age. And yet, why bother when we've got that glowing blue tube in our house? Why would we bother going outside to see God's handiwork, the star show, the work of his fingertips? He declares his glory, his majesty. But brothers and sisters, in these last days, God has revealed himself through his son, the Lord Jesus, hasn't he? There's none without excuse. Dave quoted this verse last week. He says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Son, full of truth. John goes on and says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, in our Lord Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Father loved us and sent his Son that we might know the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his power, the fullness of his majesty, and the fullness of his love. He sent his Son. Hebrews 1 says that he is the express image of his person. The Lord Jesus Christ is the express, the manifest, the picture, the person of God himself. The Lord Jesus, if you want to know what God looks like, he's not a gray-haired guy with golden or blue eyes sitting on a white throne. He looks like Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God. What does Jesus look like? I don't know exactly, but he looks like a 33-year-old man. He has wounds in his hands and on his brow. This is the God who has sought to reveal himself to us. The disciples question the Lord Jesus. And he says, if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, 
They will not be persuaded even if one raises from the dead. Yet he came, didn't he? He came in bodily form. You know, I have no trouble, I've said this before, I have no trouble conceiving that Jesus Christ is God. I have trouble reconciling that he is man. How can he be man? How can the creator of this universe, the creator of these souls, of these spirits, how can he be a human? The two great wonders that I, that I confess are the wonders of him becoming flesh and dwelling among us and the wonder that he could become sin for us. These are the great questions in my mind. And so the Lord Jesus came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. We don't have time for any more, but one thought that I had seen and I thought was beautiful is that in every other religion or every other culture that believes something other than the truth, that the concept of the creator is abstract. They try to describe it in words or in writings or in teachings or in imagination, but it will always be an abstract. But to the Christian, the creator God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's not something that we just hear about and say the very essence of God. You know, he's a spirit or he's an essence or he dwells within all of, all of creation. We know that God dwelt among us. God was sent here to become like us, to lead us into all righteousness, and to be led to the cross of Calvary. This is our Savior. That is not willing that any should perish, but has revealed himself to all men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love, that you are a God of justice as well. And Father, we sing that it was there at Calvary that heaven's love and heaven's justice met. And it met on the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that with his stripes we are healed. Father, we thank you that he is alive and that he is seated on the throne. Father, we thank you that he is coming soon for us. Father, each of us will meet him in the air. Those that have gone ahead will not, they, they will precede us. They will meet him first. And Father, those of us that are alive and remain, we too will be caught up to be with him in the air. Oh, Father, we long for that day. We pray that those of us, uh, that those in our families and in our circle of work or school or whatever it may be, that the, the Spirit of God would be working in their hearts, that they would be seeking something to fill that void in their hearts. Father, we know that we have friends and relatives and neighbors that need the Lord. Oh, Father, we pray that you would use us when their hearts are crying out, 
when their hearts are seeking your revelation, that, Father, you could use something as lowly as we to bring thy word and thy son into their lives. So, Father, we ask thy blessing upon us each in our Savior's name.